This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And today we are welcoming you to week three of our series on the parables of Jesus called He Gave Us Stories. And this week we're coming to a parable that I find fascinating. Now, I'm not sure exactly if you guys are in the mood for a six-hour podcast, then you're in luck. <laughs> Because this one, well, there's just so many things to talk about. Because if nothing else, this parable, because this is the parable of the sower, is a unique one in that Jesus gave the parable. The disciples who were with him are like, um, what? And he said, okay, <laughs> let me explain it to you. So we not only have a parable, but we have Jesus explaining the parable and what it means. So there's no conjecture. There's no theorizing. We know what he means. But we also have a situation where there's an odd thing that takes place, an interesting exchange between the disciples and Jesus regarding why he was speaking in parables. So there's lots of lots of things to talk about. It's very fascinating. And this is... The Parable of the Sower. This has to be, I think, Sam, one of the most famous parables. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Probably top five, I would say. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, Prodigal Son, I think, is still number one. Good Samaritan. Good Samaritan. Lost Sheep, I think, is also big. Um, There's this one. I mean, it's just there's there's four or five of them that are really, really famous. Um, Mm -hmm. This one is interesting because to me, most of the time, if we're going to segregate the world – you know, people, we put them into two camps. It's like, there's there's two kinds of people in this world, Sam. Those that write with their right <laughs> hand and those that write with their left hand or whatever. But, I mean, even Jesus, the, the, you got sheep and goats. You got lambs and wolves. You've got, you know, not narrow my people road. and my people. Right, narrow yeah. road, wide path. So there's typically a division into two camps anytime that you're talking about dividing up the population. And yet, in this case, Jesus is going to give us examples of four different types of reactions that people have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's interesting that there are four different, you know, reactions to it. And there's a lot, there's, there's been a lot of back and forth amongst theologians over time about are, you know, obviously some of these are not genuine Christians, but there's a debate about, you know, number three there in the list is like, is they, are they believers that have fallen away? Are they people that never really believed in the first place? Um, so there's just interesting things to talk about kind of all over the place with this. Mm-hmm. It is fascinating. It's like these four things become the filters into the two camps. You know, it's like on the way to becoming believers or unbelievers, here are the four ways that people respond to the gospel. Yeah. Chapter 13, verse 1 starts off with that same day. So anytime you see something like that, that same day, I'm always curious what's happening on that day. So you have to back up to the end mm-hmm. of or back up into chapter 12 to see what's going on with him. And He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees about 
uh, the sign of Jonah and the, and the fish three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the son, son of man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he's, he's kind of going back and forth with mm-hmm. the scribes and Pharisees. Um, and, and then there's the situation where the people come up to him and say um, his, that Mary and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. And they came inside and said, hey, you know, your, your mother's outside and your brothers. And Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Um, I think that's obviously kind of an interesting thing because it's it's a time when Jesus sets himself apart from his earthly familial ties. He's like making a big statement here. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, the people that he's talking to, the people that are in this audience, which includes his disciples, right. his family to some extent, and also these, these Pharisees and scribes. You know, when the Pharisees and scribes came, they felt that they were part of the covenantal community, not by faith, but by bloodline. You know, we're we're descendants of Abraham. You know, this is this is kind of our birthright. We 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 get this, and so Jesus is redefining that. He's he. It's almost like he's in front of them. He's taking it away, saying, you know, you may have genetic bloodlines and relatives, but there is a more important family that can only be determined by faith. And so, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he says, he, those who believe, those who produce fruit of the kingdom, those are my eternal covenantal family. And so, he's redefining things that the Pharisees would have been like, wait a minute, I've been, I've been leaning on my ancestry sure. you know, to make me good. And so, Jesus comes and redefines that. Now, when he gives the parable, he's going to be talking about the sower and this seed mm-hmm. Which, real quick, because you, you backed up into Matthew 12, sure. right before he gets into that conversation about the sign of Jonah and the resurrection and everything else, he's, he says this famous line uh, where he says that a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And he's talking to the, the Pharisees and he calls them. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and and he says these, you know, the famous words, you know, by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. But the idea is you'll be able to tell my people by their fruit. The yeah. good produce good fruit, the bad produce bad fruit. And so when you get into the parable of the sower, which is about casting seed, well, he's just talked about fruit. Sure. I tell you what, if you want a verse that'll bring you up short – you know, verse 36, <laughs> I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't like that verse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't Gosh. either. <clears throat> That's, um, yeah. Mm. I've spoken a lot of careless words. I have, I have indeed said a lot of careless words also. So um, as he's starting to talk about this parable, when he talks about the seed – in the uh, you know because we do have the teachers edition here so we've got the answers in the back of the book do, that they put that is that a thing anymore in schools do they have teachers I think editions? it is okay. I think it, yeah it is at least in eighth grade math it is I don't know any other any other but I have to make sure that whatever homework the teacher assigns mm. that there's not the answers in the back of the book that yeah. make it easy to just cheat so when Jesus is talking about the seed here in the teachers edition in the in the answers in the back of the book. He tells us that's the word of the kingdom. You know, there, there are times when the word kingdom 
gets used differently. You know, Jesus in his model prayer, he says, you know, your will be done on earth, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's a heavenly kingdom that 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 he wants us to bring that heavenly kingdom down to mm-hmm. the earth. So that's one kind of a kingdom. But then Jesus also, when he's talking to them, he'll say the kingdom of God is in your midst or is within you. So the, the word kingdom gets used in different ways. When he's talking about the word of the kingdom here uh, and the seed of that, I would answer, I would say that's the gospel and that that word of the kingdom that he's talking about is that kingdom that is within us. It's like that's our entry into the kingdom of God, which is the gospel of salvation by faith. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, okay. I, I think so. The one thing that I would that I'd always thought of is, you know, that when when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, for instance, the kingdom that's coming down from heaven, you sure. know, where we pray that, you know, the kingdom would spread on earth as it is in heaven. I I think the kingdom that dwells in your heart, the kingdom that that he talks about repeatedly, I always kind of conflate it. It's God taking the heavenly pattern and bringing it not just to the earth, but to your life, to your heart. He's transforming the earth from a wasteland into a garden, but he's also transforming your heart into from a wasteland into a garden. And all of it is coming by the power of resurrection. He's making all things new. He's going to bring about a new creation that's inside you and outside you. Yeah. And so I've always thought the kingdom is kind of this uh, umbrella that kind of covers all of it. Okay. But yeah, I do think it's response to the gospel. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the message of the kingdom. So um so then let's look at the parable here and then we can talk about the the four different soils. Um verse thir- chapter 13 verse 1 begins that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. It's interesting by the way. Um and and you've been over to the sea of of Galilee. Mm-hmm. Um apparently they have some coves over there that are considered like natural amphitheaters. Mm-hmm. So when you go out there, and they can they can tell you where they believe like the Sermon on the Mount was given, because you have the Sea of Galilee is basically down in a bowl okay. of hills and mountains that surround it on every side, and so when you're down in the sea, there is kind of a steep hill or even a mountain face that's going up in each direction. And so it's like you're down on the stage, on the sea, and you're you're teaching to a natural amphitheater. And sometimes, like you talked about, there's coves where the hills kind of bend inward, where the sound is naturally amplified. And, you know, it travels over water, hits the hills, and you would be able to speak from the coastline on a boat, and people would be able to hear you for quite a long range. And so Jesus made it a habit to to use that as kind of his own natural theater. There was a uh, one, I guess, one measurement that was done that I was reading about this that your voice would carry three hundred feet, which wow. is <clears throat> which is really impressive because if you think about it, that's a football field, a hundred yards, three hundred feet. So what we're talking about is that Jesus could be at one end of a football field. And speaking in a fairly normal voice, and people at the other end of the football field would be able to hear him. That's actually kind of cool because that's a that is cool. And those places existed and were recognized as the gathering places. I mean, that's why did they build their theaters in the Greek world into these natural amphitheaters? Because they didn't have microphones and speakers back then. <laughs> yeah. So this is what they did. They found places like this, and then they made them into gathering places. 
Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and if you're down on on the waters, you know, the water, the sound is traveling. You know, sometimes he would get out in a boat like this, and he would talk. And there's no obstruction to the sound. There's nothing to absorb it. It just goes right over the water um, in every direction to where he can be projecting his voice in a particular direction, and it goes over the waters unobstructed so that when his when the sound waves reach the direction that he's projecting, there's nothing that has broken them down and they hit the, the shore and go up the mountains in a much broader swatch. I think that's cool just because it's not something that um, that we encounter very much in our like world, these natural amphitheaters being sort of a big thing. And I think that when somebody who's not familiar with the way things operated in the ancient world uh, with that respect, when they hear that Jesus spoke to the crowd and that hundreds of people could hear him, there's a certain amount of, of 21st century. Oh, yeah, like really without a microphone, they could all hear him. Yes, they could. In fact, all hear him. So, um, so that's what happened in this case. The crowds gathered around him and eventually crowded him so much that, like you said, he got into a boat so that he could speak to them as they stood back on the shore. Yeah, this is one of those things that's like, you know, when if, if you were telling, um, you know, the myth of Hercules or something, they never put in details like this if it's mythological language. That this detail, like the ancient, the rabbis never taught out in nature like this. I mean, it was reserved for the synagogue, or at least most of the time you would find them in a synagogue or temple courts or a place that's kind of officially sanctioned. And Jesus is like, you know, he's not a street preacher. He's a Sea of Galilee preacher. He's mm-hmm. out in, you know, nature. Sure. And these kinds of details, you know, give such a specificity to it that it's, it's you can tell it's, it's you know, somebody's chronicling this. This is a a real story. It's not invented. It's meant to be a history, which is just kind of cool. These little details like this that yeah. would have been abnormal for the time are like, he did this. No one else was doing this. This is interesting. So I'm going to include this in the story. Yep. And it says the whole crowd stood on the beach, um, verse 3, and he told them many things in parables, saying, and this is what he gives them the parable of the sower, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprung up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them, and other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So we've got four different receptions essentially to the same thing. I got sort of interested in this because I don't believe that Jesus chose examples for his parables um, at random, like lightly. Like when he talked about a sower going out to sow seeds, the people in that agrarian society would have understood what that meant. Mm -hmm. So uh, a farmer that had fields in those days would have these paths that sort of crisscrossed their fields, you know, kind of breaking them up into into sections. And they would do that um, for a variety of different reasons. But one of them was simply so that they had some place to walk where they weren't trampling over the things they were trying to grow. Um, but also it would segregate one field from another. They'd plant certain types of things in one field and certain types of things in a different field. Um, so these pathways 
were would have been familiar to them. They would understand that that sort of hard packed dirt that nothing grew on that because that's how the farmer got around. Mm-hmm. They also would have understood this idea of rocky soil because if nothing else is true about that part of the world, they have some rocks in their soil. <laughs> they got rocks. They got lots of rocks. Man, that is one place I would not want to walk around barefoot. It would yeah. be painful. There's just rocks everywhere. So there's a pre- preparation that would be involved there that if you were going to plant, you would need to first get the rocks cleared away. If you were going to have an area that you were going to plant crops in, you would start by removing the rocks from the areas in which you intended to plant. Um, and then there's a, a sort of final preparation where before they would put the seed you know, in the ground, they would till the ground. They would go out and turn the soil over and, and, and work through it with these plows. You would plow the field. Well, why did you plow the field? You plowed the field to, to aerate the soil, to break it up, but also to break apart any weeds and, and things that were starting to grow in there so that you wouldn't have things other than the crops that you were going to plant. So in other words, when he started to tell them this parable, his audience, Sam, they would understand immediately that Jesus was talking about a situation in which some soil had been prepared to receive the seed. Mm-hmm. And there were some, like there were other places where you would, you would cast the seed and till it afterward. Like in some of the commentaries, there were some farmers that would do it that way. And the problem with that way is is it does you don't pull up the weeds, so you it disrupts them, it pulls them up, but then they're still in the dirt, and then they reattach. And so they were saying there, there's two different ways, but the idea is. What's the whole purpose that you're out there throwing seed? You're out there throwing seed because you want big crops. You want right. lots of fruit. That's the whole purpose of it. And so he's laying down saying, okay, here's here's different types of soil, and here's the types of soil that are not going to produce fruit. And you know, he's laying this down so that we can relate to him. You know, one is, you know, on the path where the birds come and devour the seed. They never go down in the dirt. Another one is, you know, there's stone under the soil that doesn't allow it to go down and, and find roots. And then there's another one where, that's thrown into a, a field where there's lots of weeds and thorns and everything else. And then there's one with good cleared soil, like you're talking about. Right. Um, and so he's inviting us to say, okay, how, how in the world does that relate to our life? <laughs> you know, what, what do I have in common with any of these? The same parable is given in the other Gospels, and, mm-hmm. um, and the explanations uh, are slightly – it's like each guy includes different like details um in um i think it's mark that says that uh the the seed is trampled on and then luke says it's trampled on and then the birds eat it and then here it's the birds <laughs> eat it but then matthew alone when jesus is explaining this matthew alone includes this idea that the seed that fell along the path that he says it was t- it was it was snatched away by the evil one, um, which I think is interesting because the different slant that each of the gospels brings on almost all of these um, I think is fascinating because the, each of the gospel writers they would they all they all were there to hear the same accounts. I mean they're standing around listening to them, but the things that they remembered of it I think show a certain. Uh, 
like a proclivity that each of them has. You know, Luke is very much about the details. Luke's like, yep, it got stepped on and then the birds ate it. You know, it's like he, mm-hmm. he, he was telling you exactly what happened because that was the way Luke was. He gave you, he's like, tick, 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 tick. If you want all the details in the proper order, you read Luke. And Matthew, on the other hand, because of his background as a tax collector, I think that Matthew just kind of had sort of a higher, like, sensitivity to when the enemy was getting involved. Hmm, that's an interesting way to go. He's Matthew is writing it more to the people of Israel. So right. Matthew's he's writing Matthew's obsessed with the kingdom, the kingdom of God, where Luke is writing to a Gentile population. He opens, you know, Dear Theophilus, you know, he's writing to a to a Greek. And so Matthew is going to be speaking more in terms that the that the Israelites or the Jews would have been familiar with. So he invokes more of that the evil one, where the Greeks would have been like, "Wait, what? Who's the evil yeah. one?" You know, <laughs> which which evil one? I, there's, yeah, a right, bunch of, exactly. there's a bunch of evil ones. Which one are you talking about? <laughs> so so Matthew's writing to people that he assumes are familiar with Jewish custom and and Old Testament prophecy more so than Luke. Even though Luke brings that in, he's writing to a Gentile audience. So I think you're right there. It is interesting, though, because that's one of the things that, you know, when people talk about um, the Gospels, you know, it's like these people can't even agree amongst themselves. I'm like, no, that's not the case at all. (laughs) You know, as you say, each of them is writing to an audience where there is some kind of assumed knowledge. Mm -hmm. Matthew understood that the people that he was writing to would know certain things, so he didn't need to spell them out. Luke, Mm -hmm. on the other hand, was like, I better explain this (laughs) or they're not going to understand what's going on, you know. But it's also God has ordained that we have four different people who come to us with gospel accounts to bring out specific things of the story. So if if I left my if I left the office right now and I went out and did man on the street and I asked everybody to write me a first person account of what you remember from September 11th, you're not going to get a whole bunch of echoes. You know, you're not going to have people say, "Well, this happened A B C D all in." But it's going to be from their perspective, what they remember, what made an impression on them, and they're going to tell it from their perspective. All of the perspectives true, right? If they get all the details correct, you would be able to read them, and you'd be like, wait a minute, he didn't mention this. Right. But that's perspective. So you're getting Matthew's perspective and, and John's perspective and, and on and on. Yeah, that's uh, that's very true. And and I think that by looking at all of them, you can see, a, you know, sometimes a much more complete picture mm-hmm. of, of what was taking place. So in this case, with this seed that fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them, this would be an example of somebody who, you know, they they hear the gospel, but they pay no attention to it. They're caught up in their own getting from place to place maybe i don't know maybe that's there's the path metaphor it's like i'm i don't have time to stop and listen to what you're saying i've got places to be and things to do <laughs> um you know i'm maybe i'm reading into the metaphor a little bit more there but i but i've always sort of right. i've always sort of pictured the path because the fact that um mark and luke talk about the seed being trampled tells me that you know jesus was saying you're busy you're moving you're not mm-hmm. listening, you're not paying any attention to what's being said, and you're literally stepping on this, the word of the kingdom. You're stepping on the gospel. You're paying no attention to it. Um, I, I went back and, and read something that I had wrote about this parable, gosh, probably 10 years ago now, and I didn't remember having this thought, but as I was reading my words, I thought, I like that. <laughs> you know, it was like I'd come across the idea for the first time, but I wrote in there, 
that this is this is not only you know the people who have no time you know I, I'm just they won't even take it they won't even consider it. it's just hardened pathway that ironically the other people that fit into this category are the religious leaders and and I was and and the thing I was writing you know they're just so hardened that the seed can't penetrate they they've got it all figured out they're so self righteous they don't even consider what Jesus is saying. They are hard-hearted. Nothing can penetrate them, and they're on this well-worn path where tons of people have walked before, but they cannot receive anything new. Yeah. And so, you know, Jesus is casting the seed to all these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, and and very few of the Pharisees will wrestle or consider what Jesus has to say. Most of them are just, you know, rabidly eager to call him a heretic or or a blasphemer, they, they're, they're so hard-hearted, they can't take anything new. It's like the other parable of the wineskins. They're, they're hard, bitter wineskins that t- can't take any new wine. They're just – they can't – no seed penetrates. And I think ironically – and I think this is true in the church. I'm just going to throw this out there. You know, One of the things, having been in Christian education, one of the dangers of going to a Christian school or one of the dangers of sitting in a pew week after week after week after week is the gospel ceases to be amazing, right? You hear the same stories, and it's like, oh, I've heard that before. And and the gospel ceases to be amazing. It's like your heart becomes hardened to where the seed can't penetrate anymore. And so I think, ironically, very religious people fit into this category. Mm. They, they're not moved by the gospel. They're not changed by the gospel. They don't think the gospel is amazing. They know it all, and so they're hardened to it. It doesn't move them. Nothing yeah. grows. There's no fruit, no change, because they know it all already. If you're too busy to uh, receive the gospel, you're too busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I say that's true. Yes. So now the rocky ground, which is the second soil out there, um, this is going to be a, a, you know, a shallow covering of soil over the rocks. And just, again, it's, a, it's, it's an agricultural reference, but people would understand, the, his audience would understand, that if you put seed in shallow ground, if it doesn't get pushed down to a certain depth of soil, that two things would happen. The first is that it would seem like growth was explosive, like things would just show up immediately because it just didn't have a lot of soil to push through. Normally, you plant the seed down in the soil, and and it begins to grow up and down simultaneously. It puts roots down and sends stalks up, and it takes a certain amount of time for those to break through the soil and for you to see the new growth there, the new life happening. And while that's happening, it's also sending roots down in the other direction. But the seed that's scattered into the shallow soil would have sprung up immediately, like instantly, like a super fast response because it didn't have far to go, but it also wouldn't have any roots. Um, I think that that's mm-hmm. interesting because when Jesus is explaining this, he says, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Um, mm-hmm. I have known people like that who it's like you you begin to to talk to them about the gospel or just you just begin to talk to them about 
God in general, like spiritual things in general. And it's not that they it's not that they don't accept it. They do accept it, but they almost don't seem to be taking it very seriously. Mm-hmm. It's like they immediately they they've got all this in this boundless enthusiasm and what they really want to know is, okay, so what do I do next? It's like that kind of I'm going to you know, all right, this is my new thing now, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go out there, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna tell everybody, I'm gonna tell my parents, and I'm gonna tell my, or my coworkers, or my boss, or, and, and they just immediately begin to have this kind of joyous, overly enthusiastic reception of it. And, and when that has happened, I've thought, uh oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. This this isn't going to end well because there's going to be a pushback when when you you know that that very first time that you come up to a coworker and said Bob I've got to tell you I just found Jesus and you need him too um, <laughs> how do you figure that's going to go over in the stockbroker's office how did it go over with you <laughs> <laughs> lots of silence and yeah. slow moving away from me. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just stand right there. I'm going to be backing away toward the door over here. That's right. Um, uh, you know, I, I've seen this a lot in, in my life. And it's a perfect example of this, and, and it's done with the best of intentions, is I would say, you know, when, when you do evangelistic crusades where you're talking up to an audience and you've had really – and I'm not, not, I'm not knocking evangelistic crusades. Hear me. When you're you, you've had the music and the powerful worship experience, and everybody around you is caught up in adoration of God, and they're experiencing this, and then the word comes out: Do you want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior? Yes, you know all you have to do is say this prayer, and you get people who are like, "I'm all in," you know, and we we reduce what it means to follow Jesus to to something simple. And there's no follow through there. Roots never develop. It never, you never get any depth to it. The, the moment they walk away from that, you know, and the sun comes up, it's gone. Yeah. There's, there's nothing there. And we as, as a church, we've done a disservice to what it means, what Jesus is calling people to, because he's, he's not just saying, okay, say this prayer and welcome me into your heart. You, you'll never find Jesus say that. Jesus is always coming to people with a message of of surrender. You know, lay your life down, come and follow me, um, and and it's an invitation to say, "There's nothing more in my life more important than this." And we don't do that. And so, when you have the evangelistic crusades, they're wonderful, but there's almost it feels to me that there's a, a an obligation to follow up with those people to make sure. That they're they're being grounded, that their roots are growing, that they're getting nourishment. What's the job of the roots? It's to go down into the soil and and to to suck up the nutrients that God has put in that place, and to get the water that God has put into that place. But if if their roots only go shallow and they have that brief moment of joy, eventually they're never they're never going to get the nutrients they need to grow up into a strong plant to be able to withstand. They'll have had that brief moment of joy. But then they'd never have an ongoing relationship with Christ or the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to spur them on, and they wither. Um, and, and I think that happens actually a lot. I think it does too. And I think that it happens because um, the, the, this decision to follow Christ or to become a Christian, rather, 
becomes a sort of transactional one. Um, mm-hmm. And and I understand that. And I I came out of a background of a of a Bible college and a church, you know, structure where it was extremely evangelistic, and they were determined to make the gospel very clear. And one of the things they wanted to make very clear was the was the separation of faith and works. They wanted to make sure that you mm-hmm. understood that it wasn't by works. It wasn't by anything you could do. It was just this transaction that occurred by faith. Um, and, and that's all good, except for the fact that it became such an extreme thing that if I were to say to them, the call of the gospel is to surrender your life to Christ and to follow him, they would immediately be like, oh, no, 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 that's a work. That's something that you're doing. And I'm like, no, but it is a decision that I'm making. You know, it's like I'm, I, it's a commitment that I'm making. I haven't actually done anything yet. Now, God's going to give me a lot of things to do, but not because that's going to earn any favor with him. But that's part of this whole process. Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow him. Jesus says, follow me. That's what he said to all of his disciples. But there's this, this almost transactional nature mm-hmm. of the, of the evangelistic crusade where it's like, here it is. Salvation is free. All you've got to do is say these words, say mm-hmm. this prayer. All you have to do is, and it's free. It's free. We are conditioned, especially those of us in the Western world. We're conditioned. You know, how do I get you to pick up my junky couch from the side of the road, Sam? <laughs> Offer me pizza. Yeah, well, no, 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 no. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. That's if I'm getting you to pick it up. How do I get someone to pick it up? I put a sign on it that says free. <laughs> yeah, right. You put yeah. stuff out and you put a sign on it that goes free. And somebody will come along and take it. Even if it's the nastiest looking couch in the world, even if it's the junkiest looking whatever dresser out there. They will come and take it and see what they can make of it and then, mm-hmm. and then put it on their curb later or something. But the point is that, that we, especially in the West, this, the denizens of the West, we're, if it's free, we're like, sure, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. Salvation is free. Good. Sign me up. I get to go to heaven when I die. Cool. All right. So anything else I got to do? That's it. All right. So. All right, then I guess I'm done. And they move on. There's none of this. There's, there's no call to discipleship, which mm-hmm. when Jesus told the, the apostles what to do, the great commission, what did he say? Go into all the world and make disciples. Mm-hmm. Teaching them to obey. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's not just here, say this prayer, sign on the dotted line, see you, see you in heaven. You know, like that's, and, and we, we do a bad job. And to your point, like, we are not saying that salvation is anything that you do, but the I remember I, I used to have a pastor that I was was under who who was very much like that that you don't contribute anything to your salvation like you know it's all you have to do is is show up there's even your sanctification there's nothing you contribute to that and I used to get in arguments with him that I'd say you're wrong. And so he had a – and everybody who knows of him will probably know who he is when I'm done talking. But he used to have an expression that would say, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, when you're coming to faith and you're receiving salvation, you contribute nothing. We, we like to say you contribute nothing to the gospel except – to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Correct. <laughs> right? I love that line. But then when you get to sanctification, you're still – 
It's still Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The part that becomes painful and hard where it takes sacrifice and surrender is to make that equation true, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You have to become nothing. You have to die to self. You have to take your agenda and all the things that you want. And like Jesus says, take up your cross and crucify the flesh. Those are not like, oh, this is going to be so fun. It's, you know, easy. That's why he uses words like crucify. (laughs) You know, it's... You're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to surrender all the things that are opposed to his kingdom. That's what a life following Christ will do. Now, you're going to mess up and you're going to stumble, and the cross pays for all of it. But the measure of being a disciple of Jesus, he calls you after him, and that means dying, Mm. dying to yourself and living for him. That's why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the goal, is that as you die to self, as you recognize your own weaknesses and frailties, the Spirit of God comes and empowers you and enables you to live a life that's a lot more like him. That's what it means to be a Christian, and that means you have to get out of the way. It can't be your agenda anymore, and that's really hard because we want what we want, sure. <laughs> you know? Sure. But just saying, hey, you know, just just pray this prayer and then go on living however you want to live, man, they will never know the joy and the rich satisfaction of developing those deep roots that go down into the Word of God and experience the power of the Spirit. And when, you know, as it says, when the sun comes up, they wither. Yeah. You know, and I'm not suggesting that you can't start from. Oh no, you the, will start there. <laughs> the, the evangelistic crusade and and kind of come out of that because that's my own story. My own story is sitting in a high school Latin class and a guy hands me a gospel tract and that's where it began. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you that after that, I went through this period where, if you would like to have living proof that. When James says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, you could have just looked at me, you know, shortly after my experience of coming to faith, of making that decision, because I wanted to keep all of my stuff mm-hmm. and just have the Jesus stuff also. And so I began to have good Mark and bad Mark. I had the, the Mark when he was around his friends that, that talked about Jesus and Mark who was around his friends that talked about weed or whatever other topic <laughs> it was. And, you know, and so there was this weird dichotomy in my life and I was unstable. There's no better word for it. The, you know, I was tossed around. Um, I was rudderless and purposeless. And it wasn't until I reached a point where I could see that trying to have my agenda mixed in with it because I kind of was told I didn't have to, you know, all I'm doing is just accepting this free gift of eternal life, right? So, Mm -hmm. but at some point I had to realize that that meant I I don't get to hang on to all my stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where things began to change for me. Uh, And it was this process of, of, of putting to death, of laying aside, of putting down, that continues to this day. I am constantly getting in the way of things with God. Um, but I also understand that, you know, so, so it's not wrong necessarily, you know, like, oh, well, what happens if I walked the, the path at a Billy Graham crusade? Hey, you know, that's great. If you, if, wonderful. If, wonderful. You know, it's a great starting point, but then where do you go from there? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so just to make things 
more confusing <laughs> for people who are listening. The way that you're saved is not you saying, you know what? I'm now wise enough to accept God. And by my wisdom and by my efforts, I'm going to change as a human being. Right. The, the way that the Bible talks about your salvation is you are born again. The power of the Spirit moves upon you and makes you a new creature. And when you're a new creature, you may not know how you got that way. You might think to myself, you know, I, I did go in front of the Billy Graham crusade or respond to EE or at a spiritual mm-hmm. emphasis week at my school. Sure. And I made a profession. Well, if the Spirit has sparked new life in you, then you will have an insatiable appetite for more. Your roots will go down. You will want to draw near to him. It will be this compulsion that's within you that you can't get enough of him. And you're going to stumble and you're going to do it imperfectly. But the spirit is alive in you and you will feel that need for more. And you will. You know, your roots will go down. But if there is no spirit moving in you, you might have that moment where you're like, this is really exciting. But then nothing happens after that. You never develop any roots. What what that's diagnostic of is that the spirit has not made you alive. And that yeah. might be overly harsh, but I think that's reality. I can remember, uh, you know, fourteen year old me. Okay, this is my experience coming to faith. You know, I was I was brought up in a church that. Um, we went to church on Sundays, and then from Monday through Saturday, we didn't really pay much attention to church. It's like church was a thing you did on Sunday morning. Um, and I remember being excited about the fact that, hey, I can actually read the Bible anytime mm-hmm. I want. I can actually go to Bible studies. And, and I used to – back in those days um, – the local country radio station. I think it's actually still the same country radio station. They don't do this religious stuff in the evening anymore. But back in those days, the local country station, starting about 9 o'clock at night, would give over to religious programming. And J. Vernon McGee and Through the Bible would come on. And, oh, you boy. know, Chuck Swindoll. Jay McGee. I'm telling you, I love him, man. <laughs> and Chuck <laughs> Swindoll would come on and do his mm-hmm. teaching. Oh, and yeah. all the And I would get – every night – I would tune into these guys and listen because I was very – I very much wanted to learn more about this. Now, that I think, you know, for me at least, you know, that's also – that's all kind of part of my story. When I see these things that happened to me back then and I look back on them, I can see God's hand, you know, in, in and through these things. And as a good Calvinist, my message to all of my Baptist friends out there is that I believe you are saved. I just don't think you know how you got that way. <laughs> That's my standard joke, by the way. I trot that out every time I'm talking to a Baptist. I'm like, you know, I... Yeah, there are lots of Reformed Baptists. There are, there are. But it's still a funny joke. It's, it's one of the few Calvinist <laughs> salvation jokes. Um, but then, you know, when Jesus is talking about this, and he talks about uh, this one that has no root, says he endures for a while down in verse 21, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Mm-hmm. And... That's something that's going to be true for lots of people when mm-hmm. they first come to faith is that first wave of opposition that you run into is going to be that brother, sister, wife, mm-hmm. husband, boss, parent, somebody. 100%. Who when you go to share this with them, they give you the, the stink eye and they're like, oh, no. Are you going to be like this all the time? And the easiest thing in the world is for you to then take a step back and go, nope, sorry, yeah. sorry. 
And there's some people who feel that sense of buyer's remorse. Like, I remember having this encounter, but then they followed up and wanted more from me, and I was embarrassed of it. Like, I, I had an, an experience like that in a, in a charismatic church. And, you know, as soon as I spoke up, I went home and I was like, I'm not going to live up to that. I This was wrong. I, I'm never going back there again mm-hmm. um, when I was young. And, you know, when when we talk about these things, there's some of this that, that is meant – these parables are meant to give you a gut check. They are. But, but one of the things that I want to encourage people with because it's like, oh, my gosh, is that me – if you're asking that question and you're you're legitimately like I want to be closer with God or I feel, you know, far away from God but I desire it. You know, I just want to encourage you pursue him. But I also want to encourage you the fact that you have those the fact that you're listening to this podcast number 1. <laughs> <laughs> you know, shows me that you have some hunger that you recognize you need deeper roots, you know. But even if you're struggling with those questions like, what's wrong with me? Why don't I feel more joy? Why am I not producing more fruit? You know, And you have those questions. That's evidence that the Spirit is moving in you, you know, and triggering things in you. And so take that as an encouragement. Yeah. Every one of us, including Mark and I, you know, all of us, Pastor Tom, all of us are going to go through seasons where things feel dry. Sure. That's, that is not an evidence that you're not a believer. And so you've got to – You've got to remember, you know, God's faithfulness. You've got to remember the amazing times. You've got to remember the highs. You've got to remember all the fruit that he has produced in you. And then in all of your failure, when you feel like, man, I am not producing fruit, when you have those questions, that's when you go to the Lord and you remember the gospel and you preach the gospel to yourself all over again because guess what? He makes you new. Yeah. He forgives you. Mm. And what that does, when you feel like a failure in the sight of the Lord and then he comes to you and says, you're every bit as precious to me as you ever were. And so I'm going to make you new. I'm going to – all of your sins are forgiven. Come near and you experience the sweetness of the Lord loving you in spite of your failures. It renews all this over again Um, and it it deepens your roots, Mm -hmm. you know. You know, and I know I've told this story on the podcast before, but, you know, in that early time in my Christian walk, in ages, you know, 14 to 18, and I struggled so hard with the, you know, I I felt like a terrible disappointment to God, and I felt like I could just couldn't, I couldn't get control of my, you know, very well-developed, you know, sinful habits, you know, it's like these things that I'd been doing, I continued to do, and I got to that point, and I've say I've told this story before, but I got to that point when I was, I think I was 18 or maybe 19. I thought to myself, this all must have been a mistake. This, this must have all been unreal. And so if I can't be a good Christian, I'm going to be the best pagan I know how to be. And I took my Bible and literally put it on the shelf, like, I'm figuratively and literally like I went to my closet, highest shelf, put my Bible up on the highest shelf, and for like 18 months or some, time around that time i just plunged into chasing every hedonistic interest i possibly could ever have and came out the other end of it with a an experience that really kind of left me feeling like okay i've gone too far i've wandered you know it's like god called me back and and i started you know and i and i went and knocked on the pastor's door and and he was surprised to see me but he let me in <laughs> and you know i started i started you know i poured out my heart to him and he goes you know 
I'll see you on, I'll see you at church on Sunday, you know, and don't forget Bible study on Monday night, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And so I got back into this again and guess what? Things were great. I mean, no, <laughs> no, things weren't great immediately. I still had the same issues I had on the, on the front side of all of this, but the difference was that I recognized that there was something, the fact that I was in the fight, the fact that I was in there mm-hmm. pitching, the fact that it bothered me that I was still struggling with these things, that meant something. Mm-hmm. There's life in you. And I'd, been, yeah. and I'd been up and down and success and failure to varying degrees. It's never been perfect, but it's always been something where I felt like I could not walk away. I remember a line, and I don't remember the preacher who said it, but he was talking about salmon, you know, the spawning. The upstream thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he said, you know, all fish can go downstream but only a living fish can go against the current to go upstream. Mm. And so, you know, that's that's what what you're talking about where it's like it's easy to everybody looks the same when they're going downstream whether you're dead or living. Um but to fight against it like you're talking about where it's like there's something in me that just wants to be better. Fallen, broken, a mess, still need a savior, but a fight. Right. You know, the kingdom fight is in you. And, you know, one of the other things about this parable, this particular one where it talks about the seed falling on the rocky ground, is it says it immediately sprang up, right? You're joyful, and so, boom, here comes the sprout. And then the next line it says, and when the sun rose, and it uses the same word, you know, so the the plant springs up, but then the sun springs up. And it's interesting to me that the sun, which for, for a plant that is deeply rooted, is a source of life. But the sun for a plant that has not developed roots causes it to wither, um, and I think that I think there's something to that. I think there it's fascinating. You know, it makes me think of, uh, you know, the Lord. Here, you know, here comes the sun with all of its heat that gives life to those that have taken deep root and scorches those and kills those that have no roots. I think there there's something there that's fascinating. Well, that's only the second of four soils. (laughs) (laughs) That's the conclusion of episode 142A, part one of this week's podcast. Part two was released at the same time and is available as episode 142B. Our goal is to always keep episodes of Out of Water to around an hour, plus or minus 10 minutes. This week, we recorded for two hours. That became 90 minutes after editing, and thus we put it in two parts. So we encourage you to pick right up with episode 142B, part two of the Parable of the Sower. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.